All right, so we are starting in 1 Corinthians this morning. If you missed last week, last week's sermon was not like technically in 1 Corinthians, but it was sort of a preamble, <laughs> uh, trying to cover kind of the transition between where we ended in Matthew and where we're starting this morning historically and um, theologically. So if you missed that, I'd encourage you to kind of go back and check that out. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1. So the background of what's happening in this church is very important, not just at the beginning of the book or the letter, but all the way throughout. I'm not going to give you a huge history dump this morning because it, it kind of, you forget all of it by the time it applies, right? So you get halfway, like you get down to like chapter 12 and you're like, I can't remember what he said on the first week. So I'm not going to do a bunch of stuff. I'm just going to give you bits as we go along as we relate, okay? Um, but a couple of things to kind of get us started. One is in Acts 18, you can read that this week in your devotions if you want. Um, it's kind of cool to read that because you see where Paul is planting this church that he's now writing this letter to. So you get to see like Paul starting this church and everything's great. And then by the time we get to 1 Corinthians, things are not great anymore. Things have radically falling apart, right? But it's still a church, right? Which is encouraging. Like you can, you can, there's a pretty wide tolerance before you become not a church anymore. That's encouraging to me. That means we can, we can be messy and God's not going to come and say, yep, you're not a church anymore. I'm not blessing you. Instead, he sends Paul to kind of bring in course correction, right? And that's what we need. Right, so Acts 18, you see the planting of this church. Paul came to the city, and he made tents to make a living, which becomes important later, in a, probably next week or the week after, where you see that some of the people in the church uh, don't like Paul because of the way he made money. That plays into how we interpret the book. He was with Aquila and Priscilla, who worked alongside Paul to plant this church. Paul was there, seems like about 18 months, um, and then continued on his journey planting other churches. The fact that Paul was a tent maker and did not take a salary from them was significant in their growing lack of respect for Paul. We'll see that later. 1 Corinthians is a challenging letter. Let me just say that up front. It's just really challenging. It's a little bit like, because this is actually probably the third letter. Okay, so, so Paul wrote them a letter. They replied, and he's replying to their reply. That's probably the order in which it went. And we don't have the first two. We don't have the first letter or the reply. What we have here is the reply to a reply. So it's like listening to like a phone call conversation and you only get half the conversation. You're having to infer what the other person's saying. All you hear on the other side is, and you go, I think they must be talking about this. We're going to do a lot of that in 1 Corinthians. All right? It doesn't mean it's impossible. That's the other thing I want to say, because it tends to be like, like remember Revelation, when we went through Revelation, and we had the same dance, which is like saying, yeah, this is hard, but it's not unknowable. Because some people go, if it's hard, they shrug their shoulders and go, well, I'm not going to, who can know? I feel like that's the mantra, or one of the mantras of our age, is people kind of going around and go, who can know the truth? I just won't worry about it. Shoulder shrug, shoulder shrug away eternity. Because we say, well, who can know? You can know, and so we're going to approach it that way, okay? Um, yeah, so that being said, we can infer quite a lot with careful reading, so we're going to do some careful reading, all right? 
Um, Corinth. Let's talk about Corinth, the city where this church is. It was originally a Greek city. Then Rome took it over and left it dormant for like 100 years. And then Caesar decided to populate it. So he just made people go there and populate this city, okay? And the reason for that was it's literally a crossroads of trade in that part of the world. Every, it's like having like I-85, 95, and 40 crossing at the same place. All the roads went through this city, and it's where all the trade was. And it was very much a uh, den of pagans, we could say. <laughs> the, the, the sexual ethics in the city were insane. Uh, the immorality of all sorts, um, a kind of uh, focus on the physical body as being like almost unimportant and immaterial, and it doesn't matter what you do to your body or with your body or to whom you do it with. It doesn't matter because what matters about you the most is this immaterial kind of spiritual side of you, okay? And so there was this sort of crazy freedom. You can see this historically in some of the stuff they've uncovered, the artwork they were depicting, is stuff I cannot show you in church, okay? Just to give you an idea. Promiscuity and infidelity was normal and celebrated. It was a melting pot of religions, cultures, languages, and morality. Uh, there was tremendous wealth through commerce. Commerce was kind of the ultimate value. Making money, have, being successful in that way. A value system that valued commercial success very highly, which I think we can all relate to in our culture. I mean, just the phrase people use, it's just business. What they mean is I have a separate set of moral and ethical rules for business than from what I do. I mean, I wouldn't treat my family this way. Of course not. But this is business. And this is exactly what's happening in Corinth. You can see this in all, all their literature, this kind of separate set of morals. This is what the ultimate value is making money and being commercially successful. The culture was very much based on shame and honor, valuing, valuing public praise very highly. There's, you can find artifacts where people would like create artwork and do like basically a billboard with their, all their accomplishments on it. It's like taking your uh, resume and posting it on a billboard and because that was the value. It was really weird to me, but it was very much a shame, honor culture. So despite Roman colonization, Greek influence was also strong. Remember I said it was originally a Greek city? And this is going to be important for us this morning. Itinerant philosophers were revered very highly. These like roaming philosophers that would go from town to town or even like house to house and make these speeches about their philosophical perspective on the universe and on life. They were revered very highly, and people had their favorites, their favorite itinerant philosopher. They were called sophists because in the Greek, the Greek word Sophia, which we will see many times in 1 Corinthians, that word, translated in English as wisdom. These traveling philosophers were prized for their clever and skilled speaking ability, not necessarily what they were saying. The content eventually became almost immaterial. It didn't even matter. What, was, what made them popular was their ability to speak in this like witty, clever, ingenious way that was entertaining and grabbed your attention. Like a TED Talk. I don't, even, I don't remember what the guy said, but man, I was just glued to him the whole time. 
That's what we get our term sophistry from. Someone who's engaging in sophistry. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's somebody who's blathering on and on and on using really big words, but you have no idea what they're talking about. And afterwards you're like, that was like a blizzard of words. And he seemed very confident about what he was saying, but I have no idea what he said. I'm confused. I think all he was trying to say was the sky is blue. But he used like, he talked for 20 minutes, right? You know that kind of person. That's sophistry. And where that comes from is this um, idea that these itinerant philosophers were exercising. Um, so when Paul, at least initially in 1 Corinthians, talks negatively about wisdom, the English word wisdom, in these opening chapters, what we'll see is he's not talking about the spiritual gift of wisdom or the wisdom of Solomon. He's talking about so sophistry, this kind of man's wisdom that looks impressive on the surface, but underneath is really shallow. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Okay, enough of that. Filled your brains with enough data at this point to get as far as we need to go this morning. All right, so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going the, the, to skip the first part. We're going to do uh, verses 4 through 9 are going to be our benediction this morning when we're done. Um, Paul starts the letter in a typical Greek introductory way, saying, "This is I'm Paul, and I'm writing to these people, and then a prayer of thanksgiving or gratitude if it wasn't a Christian letter, and then the content. So we're going to start in verse 10. And I'm using the, just so you're not confused, I'm using the Net Bible translation this morning because um, I think it's a little better in this case but I think we only have the ESV up here. So it's the same Bible, just different translation, all right? So here's what it says. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree together to end your divisions and to be united by the same mind and purpose. For members of Chloe's household have made it clear to me, my brothers and sisters, that there are quarrels among you. All right, so a couple of translation notes that I want to give you that will help immediately make this a little clearer, okay? He's urging or asking. He's, he, he, and, and the word ask there is not like, um, I'm, if, if you're convinced by my arguments, go this way. It's, it's a word you would use like, I'm asking a favor based on my relationship with you. It's the difference between debating someone into agreeing with you and just saying, hey, we're friends, like, just trust me on, based on my relationship with you, will you do this favor for me? But who is it based on? Is it based on their relationship with Paul, or is it based on their relationship with Jesus? He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not saying, because you like me, because we're going to see pretty quickly that part of the division here is not just division inside the church, it's division between the church and Paul that they were trying to separate themselves from Paul. So he's not going to say, just because we're friends and I plan the church, would you believe what I say? And he's saying, because you are loyal to Christ himself, will you stop being divided, All right? That's a really important point. What about this thing of agree together, or depending on your translation, there's different ways to translate it, literally means say the same thing. Isn't that interesting? This was just a saying that they used at the time. It kind of means like have the same confession. 
have a united front. Like moms and dads and their kids are fighting. What's the first thing you got to get sorted out? When you go to the kids, you got to have a united front. Now maybe back in the bedroom, you were kind of kind of disagreeing with each other about what needed to be done with Billy and Sarah, right? <laughs> right? But when you come out, you say the same thing, right? It's a colloquialism. It's like we need to have a united front with the kids so they don't divide us between each other and then get away with the mess they're pulling. Instead, we've got to go out there and have a united front. That's what this means. It doesn't mean you, you fakely say the same thing like pretend to be unified when you're not. It's actually come into agreement and have the same confession. United or knit together, that's a better picture because that immediately brings to mind a tapestry, right? Knit together. My mom makes quilts. Imagine a quilt. All these different colors and patterns and pieces of fabric. And if you were to throw them in a pile on the floor, you wouldn't be able to see how in the world they could be useful to each other, right? It's just a pile of fabric. But when you knit it together into a tapestry or into a quilt, suddenly it becomes unified, right? Not homogenous, because a homogenous quilt is just what we call a blanket. <laughs> Blankets are way less fun than quilts, right? Because quilts have color, they have variation, they're interesting to look at. They have, they, they're personal. They feel connected to you. And it's amazing because you see all these different things come together into one unified thing. That's what he's saying when he says united. He's saying like knit together like a tapestry. By the same mind. That's mindset or attitude. Not that doesn't mean that you all agree exactly on all the same things. But you have the same mindset or the same attitude. And we'll talk about how you get the right attitude in a minute. And also united or, or knit together in the same purpose with the same agreement, the same consent. We have agreed together to be a family. We will be united. That implies that there's an act of the will in your unity with other people. We act like, I don't know what happened. We're just not friends anymore. We just couldn't agree. That's not what he says. You have, you have come together and made an agreement to say the same thing. You have consented together to have the same confession and have the same mindset, the same attitude. It is not accidental and it does not just happen. It must happen by an act of your choice that something is more important than something else. Right? Gordon Fee has this nice outline of the verses to help you if you're confused by how they go together. So this ask is very important, okay? And it becomes the answer to how we get through the next few verses, which is what relationship is this ask based on? What, who's, who are we doing a favor for? Are we doing a favor for Paul or are we doing a favor for Jesus? And the answer is Jesus. And that becomes the answer to how it is we stay unified and diverse at the same time. Paul knows better than to say, if you just believe what I say, you'll be unified. Because they're not believing what he says. We'll find out later that they had an incestuous relationship going on in the church, 
And Paul had already, probably in his first letter, Paul had already told them to deal with it. I mean, think about this for a second. This was actually happening. A church, a Christian church, had an incestuous marriage relationship going on inside the church, and everybody knew about it, and nobody was doing anything about it. And Paul says, hey, you got to deal with this, and they don't. He has to write them a second time and say, what are you doing? They're not doing what he says. So he can't say based on my, it's like, I, I cannot say to you, follow God because I said so. I'm not enough. How many times have we seen pastors fall away and half the church falls away with them? What was wrong there? They were following God on behalf of, as a favor to the pastor, and not as a a favor to Christ. Based on their relationship with the pastor, their faith was based on him and not on Christ, and when you take the pastor away, the faith is gone with it. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom in the way Paul says these first couple of sentences. So what favor is he asking for on behalf of Jesus? He's asking that they say the same thing. This is um, taken from the political arena. I already explained kind of what that means. Um, He says, that is, there be no divisions among you, rather that you be knit together. No divisions among you, none. That seems really like a lot to ask. No divisions among you. Paul is very much against homogeny. We'll get to this, and I'm going to say this a lot because I'm going to try really hard. It's very tempting in the first sermon in a book of the Bible to say everything. And you've got to leave, you got to leave some meat on the bone for later, okay? But we'll see that you'll, I'll prove to you in chapters 12 to 14 that Paul does not want everyone to be the same. He says everybody's got different gifts. But he is adamant at the beginning, and the real problem in this church is the divisions over silly things that don't matter. And isn't this the problem that we're experiencing in the church at large right now and in our country? And the church of all places should be saying the same thing. The world has no way to do that because they don't have Jesus. We have a way to do that. So Paul's not looking for homogeny. The difference between singing in unison, this is another good metaphor, which is boring. Everyone's singing the same notes at the same time versus singing harmonies. Different tones, different voices, different notes, but they come together in this powerful way versus singing, everybody singing the same notes at the same time. Both are unified, but one is beautiful and the other is not so much. I mean, maybe the Gregorian chants have their own kind of beauty, right? But unity is good, uniformity is bad. That's the point. Okay, so what are they divided about? This is where things begin to get a little more uh, easy to apply to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 to 17. Again, this is the Net Bible. It'll be a little different from your ESV or NIV or whatever you're using. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am with Paul or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, that's Peter, or I am with Christ. Is Christ divided? There's an implied but there. But is Christ divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? This is Paul talking. 
Or were you in fact baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Otherwise, I do not remember whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with clever speech. There's that word Sophia that we can see translated as wisdom in multiple places. So that the cross of Christ would not become useless. So he says, I didn't come to you like one of these philosophers you like so much. Saying a bunch of clever arguments and clever words to impress you with my rhetoric with no content underneath it. Instead, I just came to you by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit with the gospel itself. That's it. So it would appear that the divisions were not overly, overtly theological, but were to do with factions arising in the church that held um, favored one favored leader over another. Probably, the, you know, the church in Corinth, like every church, was divided up into little house churches, and all together they would call it the church in Corinth. And each little house church might have had their own favorite guy. Apollos is great. I like Apollos. He's my favorite. I check him out every Sunday night on YouTube and. Yeah, I follow Adam, you know, closely on Twitter, and, you know, I really like his sermons because they're really relatable, and there's not too much Bible in there, and, you know, he just gives me a, a good nugget every time, and I really enjoy Apollos, and other people are like, well, I really prefer, you know, Paul, you know, Peter, he's a more of an expository preacher, and I like the way he does, and, and so I'm following, he's my guy, he's our guy, and they're all starting to, to compete against each other, and complain about each other because you don't like my favorite guy. And these factions have formed around these different teachers. Now what's important to realize is there is no division between the actual teachers. I mean, Peter and Paul got along fairly well. Paul and Apollos had no problem. These were, these were not guys who were like angry at each other and promoting division. This was happening just in the church. So knowing about the popularity of itinerant philosophers in the sophist tradition at the time, it's easy to see what's happening here. The culture was pressing in on the church in the way they viewed leaders and teachers. They were creating celebrity apostles and becoming arrogant and prideful about their favorite versus another's favorite. And we'll see clearly as we go that Paul did not measure up in their estimation because he intentionally did not play into that game at all. In fact, he came with a strategy that was the opposite, that would undermine their problem, which he said refused to be impressive. He was unimpressive on purpose. Imagine that. Who else did that? Jesus. Jesus did that a lot. Jesus could do any miracle he wanted to do. He, he, could, he was very impressive. And then there were times where he would, the crowd would gather and he would look at it and he would say, as John put it, he did not entrust himself to the crowd because he knew what was in their heart. And so he would do something to make half of them angry or disappointed and walk away sad and disappointed that they didn't get the show they wanted or the miracle they wanted or the teaching they wanted. And then his disciples would look at him and say, like, what are you doing? Like, half the crowd, like, don't we measure success by the thousands that come and you just cut 2,000 people out of a 5,000-member crowd? What are you doing? It's the same attitude. 
So how can we, we can relate to this, right? I mean, doesn't this feel painfully familiar to the culture that we live in now? Our American culture is frighteningly similar to Corinthian culture. The, the prizing of commercial success, the sexual degeneracy that we see increasing day by day by day, the divisions and schisms, the honoring of people not for what they believe or the content of what they say or whether or not they're even saying anything true at all, but just how they appear if they're charismatic and they're good talkers and they put words together nice and they make me laugh and they're clever, I'll follow them. We vote for people based on this. We ask people to run our country based on how they talk, not on the content of what they say. This is our culture, but we're not exempt from this. That culture is pressed in on the church now for decades upon decades upon decades, and we have adopted many of the same values and ways of looking at the world that the world has. Who do we have? You, when was the last time you saw a popular but ugly worship leader? What? How is it they're all strikingly handsome? I don't know what's going on. I mean, I feel like Matt Redman was the last ugly worship leader. Just looked like a normal guy, you know? No V-neck T-shirts, no like tight jeans, just a normal dude with not a great voice. Don't get offended. I like Matt Redman. But what's happened? What is that's not accidental? It's not like God only calls beautiful people to public ministry. Because the same thing is true of pastors, like popular preachers. Why are they all so good looking, or at least making great attempts to look good looking? You can tell somebody's dressing them. I mean, because they are. There are people that get paid full-time just to dress the pastor. You come in on Friday, you know, pastor, your sermon ready, get in there, about done. Well, I got your outfit. Matches the decor. Matches the stage. Looks good on camera. Kind of hides your dad bod a little bit. That's what we need to do. We got to get you a nice, you know, T-shirt and then a, uh, unbuttoned fluffy shirt over top of that, you know, and to cover that up because we can't have people listening to the word and looking at your gut at the same time. <laughs> it's an obstruction to the Lord and the Spirit. Why? Where does that come from? Like, what in the world? Like, and I, I'm, I understand where it comes from. I know how it starts. Somebody says, you know, you know, we started video videotaping our services and you know your outfit just clashes with the lighting we chose and so you know what we're going to do we're going to have you know susan's going to go buy you some some clothes that'll fit better just just to bless you because we we don't want to be a hindrance we don't people to be distracted from hearing the word by looking at the clashing of your body with the rest and one thing leads to another and you've begun to engage in sophistry, a kind of subtle attempt to promote yourself over the gospel. And Paul comes in and he says, not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to do the opposite. 
So Paul would have showed up dressed the wrong way with a sermon that's either too short or too long, depending on the expectation. Probably too long. Saying things the wrong way. Not playing the game. And the people who had the wrong heart and the wrong spirit would have been immediately offended. Anyone who was tied to that culture would have said, he's just not very, a very good speaker. I like what he said, but he's just not very, I just don't like it. This is what was happening here in this church. Pride and arrogance based on their faction, the leaders that they liked, the teachers they liked, the culture that they liked. Note here that Paul is not concerning himself with divisions in the world. This is important. And he never does. He never says, you know, it's disturbing how much division there is in Corinth. What we need to do is we need this. We need to do that. We need to vote this way. We need to start this program or this outreach so that there's no more division out in the world. He never says that. Why? Because Jesus was very clear. You will never have unity apart from me. You will either have diversity and no unity, or you'll have no unity and lots of diversity. Everybody's going to be different, and everybody's their own island, and nobody can really connect and be unified as a community because they're all about their own individuality. Or we'll be unified, but nobody gets to be different. And Paul's preaching a whole different gospel. Jesus says you'll never have unity with the world. You'll have enmity with the world because they have enmity with me. They will hate you because they hated me. And I think if you go back and look at the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11, that's that what the main point of that is that God will not allow the world to have unity apart from him. What's he say there? If you go back and read that story, isn't it your second assignment for this week? read Genesis 11. What does he say? They stop. He commanded them to go and take over the world, scatter, be fruitful, multiply. Instead, they do the opposite. They stick around and they build a city. And he said, he looks down and he goes, there's no, there's no, there's no limit to what they'll do if they stay like this. There is no limit to it. So what's he do? He divides them with language. God brings division to the world. Now, that'll mess up your head. And what are you doing trying to fix that with your little solutions? The solution is Christ. So Paul's talking to the church, saying, you are supposed to be united. You are supposed to have no divisions. The world can do what it's going to do because it's going to have divisions. But because of Christ, we can be unified. So what Paul is concerned with is the church should not be divided because we are all filled with the same spirit. And again, I'm not going to jump ahead too far. That's chapter 12. False divisions within the body of Christ is the same, I will argue later, as quenching the spirit. Being divided. Now he's not talking about theological difference. Go read Galatians and you'll see that's a case where you had false teachers teaching heresy in the church and Paul doesn't go in and say, have no divisions among you. He says, Get, you need to be rooted out of this church. You're a false teacher teaching false doctrine. That's not the problem in Corinth. The problem in Corinth is they are, following, they are elevating teachers above Christ. What, when, when Paul lists the teachers, what is he, well, how does he list it? You've got Apollos, 
Peter and Christ in the same list? What in the world? What's he saying? What's going on here? What's going on here is not just that they're elevating one teacher over another. They have put Jesus in the same list in the menu of teachers. Imagine a menu of your favorite apostle. And you got Apollos, you got Paul, you got Peter, and Jesus. And you're supposed to pick one. What's the problem? The problem is you got Jesus in the list as though he is right alongside Paul. And Paul's horrified. Like, I'm glad I didn't baptize many people in your church because you'd be saying they were baptized in my name. And I don't want to have that attached to me. Don't put me on that pedestal. Don't elevate me onto a pedestal next to and equal with Jesus himself. What is wrong with you? He can't believe what he's hearing. But doesn't this sound weirdly familiar? Doesn't this feel, isn't this what offends, should offend us when we hear, just hear the word celebrity pastor? Just the term itself should make our skin crawl, not just because we're elevating someone into a position they shouldn't be, but because we're elevating someone next to, on the org chart of the church, next to Jesus. Like, you got to pick. This is what Paul is concerned with. These false divisions, quenching the Holy Spirit, and elevating these teachers above or next to Christ. In many ways, this is at its core what we see as relativism. Isn't this how most people approach religion? It's like a buffet. Nobody has buffets anymore. I've got to come up with a better, you know, I don't know what the Golden Corral is doing now, but if they're doing a buffet, I don't want to see it. You know, I don't know what buffets look like in COVID, but it's a, it's a buffet of equal choices. I've got Jesus over here. I've got Muhammad over here. I've got humanism over here. I've got all these options spread out before me in a smorgasbord of religions, and they're all equal. They're all talking about the same God. They're all, we're all going to the same place, just different names, that whole thing. It's just a menu that I choose from. And maybe, you know, if you're like Alan Austin, he loves to mix things. I've been to, if you've ever been to a, a buffet with Alan, it's a sight to behold because he, he makes his own food by combining things in interesting combinations on his plate. Maybe that's your thing with religion. I'm just going to mix stuff together on a big pile, you know. I got my scrambled eggs and my sausage and my grits, and I'm just going to pile them all together. That's a good breakfast, by the way. Maybe that's your thing. I just jump around and move around in my faith. There's something of that going on here. And I think that's the real issue. It's essentially it's idolatry. Putting anything, putting your allegiance to anything, whether it's an ideology or a religion or a, a belief system or whatever it is above your allegiance to Christ and his mission. And it is the root of every division in the church, every single one. We call them political divisions or philosophical divisions 
or divisions about how we raise our kids or what we put names on them, but what it really is ultimately is somewhere in there is a bunch of idolatry. Is someone or someone's choosing not to say the same thing and instead choosing to uphold their thing above all else, above Christ himself. The key to unity within the church is giving your allegiance to the Christ through the Holy Spirit above all other allegiances. So let me put it this way very clearly. Anytime that you cannot say the same thing as another Christian, one or both of you is failing this simple test. The kind of unity Paul is calling for in the church is accomplished when we are aligned with Christ above all else. It's a test. The church has been tested in the last couple of years on this point. And we, have, we are failing. We are. Across the board, we're failing this test. And we are seeing over and over and over again, when, when there's an election, what happens? Politics becomes more important than Jesus. When there's a vaccine, what happens? Your ability to search the internet and what you find, the algorithms. The algorithms determine what's more important than Christ. There is no, it is silly and ridiculous that anyone would leave a church or part ways relationally with anyone over who you voted for or what shot you got. It's ridiculous. But we've seen it happen. And I, and I feel like Paul sometimes going, what you, what, why are you putting Jesus in the same list as who you voted for, what party you belong to, or what, what medical treatment you chose to get or not to get? Why are you putting him in the same list? And this is what Paul is fighting against in this church. And it's what we fight against ourselves, right? What's the answer? How do we love Jesus more than anything else? That's the money question. How do I, and therefore, be able to look someone else in the eye whose ideology I abhor, but love them as a brother or sister anyway? How do you do that? Because when you're sitting there and they're saying something, they're a they're espousing a belief or a decision they made that you hate. How do you keep from hating them? That feels very difficult. I mean, let's admit that. That's hard. That's why the world can't do it. They just create more groups to be in where everybody thinks like them. And those groups get smaller and smaller because they keep finding things they don't agree with. And now you have conflicting ideologies. You've got to believe this and you've got to believe this, but they're not compatible. So now I've got to be in like one foot in one group and, one, and not tell them that I, I'm also in this group. Like if you're a Democrat and you've got Republican friends. I just can't let anybody know that I'm a Democrat because I don't think it'll go well. That's ridiculous. That's not the church. So how do we do this? There's only one way. And again, Paul gets into this more later, but I'm trying, I'm disappointing myself. It's, the only way to do it is by the Spirit. Who is it that help makes us and stirs us to love Christ above all else. It's the Holy Spirit. It is beyond your ability. It is not within your grasp. Because Paul doesn't say, stop having beliefs. Stop 
having different opinions. Be the same. He doesn't say that. He says be different, but be unified. The only way to do that, to be both different and unified, that's not a unicorn. That's not a double rainbow ideology. That is achievable, but it's only achievable by the Spirit. In chapter 12, when he says, we have all been baptized in one spirit, the gifts are all different, but they're in one spirit, right? You may have wisdom, you may have faith. Where does it come from? It comes from the same spirit, the same source. That's how we get unified. It's not by finding a club that agrees with you, because you won't find one. There's just one club, and that's the church. So we need the Holy Spirit to continually renew our love for Christ and his mission. It's not enough to try to stay unified. Just trying, it's like trying not to want bacon. It's just your nature. Yeah? So we got, you know, the heart of Cain is in all of us. It just wants to go, I can't believe he got his offering got accepted and not mine. I don't like him at all. Pick up a rock. Whack! That's in our heart. The divisiveness. The only way out of it is Holy Spirit. Will you like raise the level of grace and joy in Christ above my proclivity to divide myself and to categorize everyone according to all different silly, stupid categories, or just retreat into my house by myself and say, I'm just not going to, I'm just, the answer is to get off Facebook. No, it's not. Because eventually you're going to have to look at somebody face to face whenever that's going to happen. <laughs> and you're still going to have to be family. So what do you do? Holy Spirit, please. Please. Make me not care so much about this stuff and help me to care more about you. So that when I look at my brother or sister who espouses some ideology that I hate and I think is ruining the world and it's wrong, what's wrong with America, and when I look at them, that I go, yeah, I really, really, really disagree with their opinion, but man, I sure do love them. I love them deeply. That's my, you know, that's my brother. That's my sister. We're family, and we're family forever. And that allegiance to Christ and Christ in them allows me not just to, get, to tolerate them, but to have communion with them, fellowship with them. That's what Paul is calling this church to, and it's what they're failing at. And it's what we're going to see over and over and over again as we go through 1 Corinthians. So I would like to pray, one, that we would just be filled with this kind of sense of family and communion with each other despite differences. But I also want to pray just over the, our whole time throughout 1 Corinthians because this is going to get, he's going to hammer on this a lot. And I just want to pray that we are open to it because, you know, there's an election coming. I'm nervous, y'all. I was talking to a pastor. He's like, it's like playing whack-a-mole or like trying to put your kids to bed being a pastor right now, right when you get them quiet and settled down and almost asleep, somebody comes and bangs on the door. It's 
some move made by the government, some governor or president or senator or somewhere makes some decision and now the kids come back up and they're all awake and crying again. And that's what I'm feeling about the election. I was like, man, it's going to be like somebody banging on the front door of the church again. I need to get your hearts ready for that. And purpose in your heart, I will say the same thing as my brothers and sisters by the Spirit. Amen. So let's stand up and pray for that. God, first we do confess before you that none of us is exempt from the temptation to divide over silly things. Over things that are less important than Christ. Things, missions and purposes and causes that are less important than the cause of Christ. To have zeal for messages that are less important than the gospel. Now we confess every one of us has that proclivity. And God, we say what you say, which is it's not of Christ. It quenches the Holy Spirit. It's a horrible witness to the world. And it's a horrible witness to Christ himself. So Lord, we repent of anything that's in our hearts. Maybe we've not said anything or been ugly on the internet or anything like that, but even just in our hearts, we have thought ourselves better than we should. Lord, would you forgive us? We don't like this about ourselves. Holy Spirit, we ask you, would you help us right now in this moment? Would you flood over all of that gross stuff in our hearts? Would, we, would you just overflow in us with love for our brothers and sisters in Christ? God, I pray even now that you would bring people to mind that maybe drive us crazy. That push all of our ideological buttons. Would you renew our love for them as you renew our love for you? that we would see you in them. God, I pray that the world would see the church, see a renewed, revived church that is unified in its diversity, that is not homogenous, but is one, that is not uniform, but is unified. God, I pray that we would be a united front to the world. God, that we would be a witness that miracles still happen. The miracle of unity and diversity would be true of us. God, there'd be no other answer but to say, this must be of God. This must, surely they are filled with the Spirit. Look at how unified they are. That church has got all sorts of weird, different people in it, but somehow they're all family. God, if we do nothing else in this church, may that be true of us. So God, we submit ourselves to you right now as willing vessels of your spirit. God, that's the kind of people we want to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.